Thanks for joining us on Lost in Science. We continue this week with our summer series, so we're hearing some more from the Labora story. This week we have Anna Sexton, who's going to be talking about Julius Wagner Joreg and their work on malaria. And we'll also hear from Nicholas J. Johnson on Charles Dawson and his search for the missing link. Stay tuned. Usually I'm sitting down in the crowd with you guys, very comfortably sipping wine and learning about science history. Um, But tonight I find myself up here for the first time um, speaking. And of course, I'm a little bit nervous because I'm a scientist and I've only ever been trained to talk to other scientists. Um, And because of this, um, I'm always obliged to give um, a talk that starts with something like this, which is, uh, hey, scientists, you should totally listen to my talk right now because my research is super important and that's because I research malaria and malaria is bad. And then it all all goes very um, grim very quickly (laughs) because I then have to tell people about the statistics. Um, But I'd like to thank the organisers for the opportunity to speak tonight because I finally get to start a talk a little bit differently. Um, A little little bit positive, actually. Um, And so here it goes. Malaria is good. Malaria has saved lives. A bit controversial, I know, and... My uh, lab supervisor is looking at me very weirdly right now. Uh, No, I am not a rogue PhD student. I can go back into the lab. Um, I just happen to be inspired by uh, Dr. Julius Wagner Joreg. Has anybody heard of that guy? Raise your hands. I'm actually hoping no one does because I want to make a point of that later in my talk. So Julius was born in Austria in 1857. Uh, He went to a famous Catholic school in Vienna, um, which uh, you will soon find out has drummed into him a very strong moral code, or lack thereof. Um, So uh, he uh, then went off to the University of Vienna to study medicine um, in 1874. And to sort of set the scene a little bit, um, this was a time when modern medicine was just finding its feet. Uh, Doctors were getting into things like hand washing and antiseptic. Uh, Doctors were just uh, starting to figure out that actually germs cause disease and not inhaling miasma or noxious air. Um, Actually, fun side fact, malaria literally is mal-area. Oh my God, that is medieval Italian for bad air, which people inhaled a lot of when they were near uh, noxious swamps, um, which in actual fact uh, were just giant breeding grounds for mosquitoes that transmit the disease to humans. So uh, whilst the germ theorists were trying to figure out that one, Julius was graduating. In 1880, he wrote a thesis called... uh, the origin and function of the accelerated heart. Um, He went on to then uh, do a little bit of work in the Department of Internal Diseases. Um, But uh, he mustn't have liked it very much because a year later he um, transferred to a psychiatric clinic to to work there, not as a patient. Um, And I can only assume he was uh, drawn to that career because it had a great deal of job security, something us scientists can only dream of. 
Um, you see, very, very rarely were people in psychiatric clinics actually cured. If you went in there, you probably were going to die in there. Um, but something one day remarkable happened. A lady suffering from psychosis came down with a fever. Sometime later, luckily she recovered from the fever, but actually she also recovered from her, her psychosis. Fascinating, Julius thought to himself, and he did whatever the uh, you know, 1880s equivalent of a Google search to look up whether there was any similar cases, and in fact there were, very few, but he found them. Um, and so there was cases uh, where people were cured of their mental illness and what they had in common is a fever before their remission. Um, so in 1887, he published his uh, observations and um, in this paper, he first proposed the idea of intentionally giving mental um, uh, illness patients uh, fever to try and treat their illness. And so <laughs> it was uh, three years later when he actually tried his idea out, he'd just gotten a promotion, so probably his, the power went to his pet head, and he invited everybody along. Uh, didn't matter if you had depression, schizophrenia, any, any, everyone was welcome. Um, Julius injected uh, his patients with an extract uh, from the bug that causes tuberculosis. It wasn't infectious, but it did cause fever. Um, and to his credit, he was sure to um, have a control group of untreated patients, which was actually a revolutionary concept at the time. And, well, to be fair, it's actually um, a revolutionary concept to some PhD students today, myself included. <laughs> so, uh, Julius was having some success with his fever therapy, but uh, mostly he was just making people very sick. Uh, but the, one group in particular was showing minor improvements um, and they actually had um, something in common, which is that they suffered from a condition known as general paralysis of the insane. Yes, general paralysis of the insane is exactly what it sounds like. You go insane and then you become paralysed. It's very nasty. First you go... Um, in the early stages, you could suffer from depression, paralysis, um, and in the end, you succumb to seizures and paralysis. Death was the ultimate and inevitable outcome. At the time, between 10 to up to 45% of patients in psychiatric care were actually um, GPI, or general paralysis of the insane patients. So it was a serious burden. There was no cure, but there were a couple of treatment options available. Um, you could choose from option A, mercury, <laughs> very toxic. Option B, selvarsen, which is a derivative of arsenic. And I'd just like to <laughs> expand on this a little bit because they gave it to patients by dissolving it in methanol, which is a substance that causes blindness, chucked in some water, and then also chucked in some caustic soda, which is that stuff in Drano that dissolves hair. <laughs> Yay! And then they took this lovely concoction and they injected it into the butt cheeks of people with GPI. <laughs> Life was good for them. Um, so you can imagine that patients weren't that perturbed when Julius gave them option C, fever therapy. Um, but despite giving people all sorts of things to induce fever, like um, tuberculosis extract, typhoid, uh, staphylococcus, streptococcus, all sorts of things, um, his patients always relapsed if they ever showed improvement. 
and he was about to give up the whole thing. Except one day in 1917, something fortuitous happened. A soldier was admitted into his hospital. That soldier had malaria. Mm, this is where malaria comes in. <laughs> malaria causes fever. Great. <laughs> Actually, malaria causes fever over and over again as the um, malaria parasites invade your red blood cells and then burst out of it. You get a day of fever and then a day of chills and sweating, and then a day of fever and then a day of chills and sweating. It goes on until you get treatment. And funnily enough, well, very luckily, actually, there was a treatment for malaria back then, which was quinine. And I have some that I prepared earlier. Yes, <laughs> you probably know, maybe some of you are also drinking it, but it's that stuff in tonic water that makes it taste yum. <laughs> but no, it won't cure you of malaria, so don't try that at home. Um, anyway, so I digress. Malaria causes fever, it was totally curable, and this was duly noted by Julius. And I'm sure you all know what Julius was thinking. And he was thinking, thank God, Ethics has not been invented because I am totally going to get the blood of that guy and I'm going to inject it into those guys. And that's exactly what he did. <laughs> he took the blood um, from the soldier when he was in a, a fit of fever and he gave it to nine patients suffering from general paralysis of the insane and just watched what happened. Uh, so a week later, all of these patients... Um, they did get fever, and he sort of just, he let them have that for two weeks. They went through seven to 12 bouts of fever because of malaria. Um, and then um, when that was all over, he treated the malaria with quinine. Um, and the experiment was deemed a complete success. Three of those patients were cured. They went back to their normal lives. They, they lived very long lives after that. Um, three showed great improvement. Two did not change. And the last patient, well, he died of malaria. <laughs> but he was going to die anyway, so <laughs> you win some, you lose some. <laughs> um, so <laughs> let's hold off a minute. I hope that you're all sitting there thinking, how on earth is fever curing mental illness? Well, it took a long time for the germ theorists to figure this one out, but... GPI was not a psychiatric disease. It was a microbial one. In 1905, during the course of Julius's experiments, um, scientists isolated syphilis uh, from patients suffering GPI. Um, and it took them so long to make this connection because syphilis is pretty tricky. In um, its first stages, uh, you just get cankers and a body rash, and then it goes away for years. You don't know you have that um, you could potentially fall ill, but um, even 40 years later, syphilis can go, uh, come back, um, and that's when shit gets real. You can either get GPI, which is pretty horrendous, heart failure, or, I'm so excited to say this one, it's my favourite, your face falls off. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Literally, your skin is eaten away as the, uh, your immune system is fighting away the syphilis. And it's very disfiguring. Um, <laughs> anyways, all three cases, doesn't matter what you've got. Uh, it was pretty fatal, except that now Julius had a cure for GPI. Um, so what happened when he was injecting his patients with malaria, um, the syphilis during the fever uh, couldn't survive the high temperatures, so the bacteria actually died. 
And then once that process had happened, Julius came in and killed the malaria, and it was all kind of this crazy, crazy uh, disease inception. Um, <laughs> but so news of his success spread, and by the early 1920s, malaria therapy was being used all over Europe, the USA, and South America. And actually, just nine years after his first exper uh, experiment, over 2,000 people had been treated with malaria therapy. Um, it had a success rate of 30%. However, it also carried a 15% chance of dying from malaria. <laughs> it was a chance that patients, or at least their doctors, were willing to take. In 1927, Julius won the Nobel Prize. <laughs> Very deservingly for medicine or physiology for his discovery of the therapeutic value of malaria inoculation in the treatment of general paralysis of the insane. And he is actually one of only three psychiatrists to win the award which really speaks volumes about psychiatry. <laughs> um, so actually, unfortunately, in his uh, later life, uh, Julius himself went a bit rogue. He was unfortunately an advocate for eugenics. He became anti-Semitic. Actually, he applied to become a member of the Nazi party, but was uh, rejected on account that his first marriage was to a Jewish lady. Whoops. Um, <laughs> And the Austrian community only recently found this out um, and were understandably not, not thrilled by it because it's kind of a bad look to have streets and medical clinics named after a Nazi sympathiser. Um, but Julius died in 1940 and um, took his, his views to the grave. But soon after, um, so did malaria therapy. So the reason that most of you have probably never heard of this guy can be summed up in one word penicillin. <laughs> Bam, syphilis was gone. Um, so to finish, Julius Wagner was obviously moral, morally corrupt, but um, he was scientifically creative. Um, and he will always be remembered, by me at least, as that one time malaria was good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> traveling through another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind, a journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. Lost in science. You are listening to Lost in Science. We're now going to go back to the Labora story from earlier this year in Melbourne and hear from Nicholas J. Johnson about Charles Dawson and his search for the missing link. I, I have to confess that Nicholas J. Johnson is not my real name. My real name is just Nicholas Johnson. Um, I put the J in the middle because I'm an author and there are a lot of Nicholas Johnsons on Goodreads. Um, but Nicholas J. Johnson, there's only me and one other guy. Uh, so we're there. Um, also, I'm kind of pretentious, so the J is quite nice. I did a, 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 an interview on ABC... Um, a statewide drive a, a few years ago and they asked me what does the J stand for and then before I could answer she said wait we'll have a phone in competition and I had to sit through 20 minutes of people going oh is it uh, Jebediah is it James 
And then someone eventually rang and said, oh, I, think, I don't think he has a middle name. I think he just put it there because he's pretentious. <laughs> and they took home an ABC bumper sticker and a sea change soundtrack from 1997. So, <laughs> that's nice. So, um, it should be very clear from that introduction that I am, I am not a scientist. In fact, I am probably about as far from a scientist as you can possibly get. I am the opposite of a scientist. I spend my days uh, either fooling people as a, as a magician um, or surrounding myself with con artists and scams and tricksters. Um, I basically spend my days up to my elbows in bullshit. Uh, that, is, that is what I do. And I think it is for that reason that I love science so much. Because to me, science is a chance to sort of put all of that aside and focus on, on what we know and what we can prove rather than what we believe or what we can convince people. Um, Science doesn't really care about your feelings or your opinions. Uh, you can't persuade science to, uh, to sort of follow you down your way of thinking. Science, obviously, as, as we all know, is about empirical evidence. Um, uh, so uh, tonight I've decided, sort of in honour of that, since I'm not a scientist, I wanted to talk about someone who is also not a scientist. He was a, an amateur, um, a man... He did have a name that sounded like he was a scientist. His name was Charles Dawson, which... Three separate people, when I have said that name to, have said, oh, you mean Darwin? I'm like, no, Charles Dawson. It's like, it's, he's like an off-brand Charles Darwin. He's like the palsonic of scientists. Um, he, um, he was actually born uh, five, in the late 19th century, uh, about five years after uh, the publication of Origin of the Species, which meant that he grew up uh, in a time at which that particular work was, was in the forefront of the scientific community. Everyone was interested in Darwin's ideas and whether more evidence could be found to, to prove Darwin correct or obviously in the case of people who didn't support his claims, incorrect. Um, and, and in particular, that meant that there were people in the scientific community uh, focusing on finding the missing link. Now, I must admit that I actually had quite sketchy knowledge of what the missing link actually was. It's to me, basically, the missing link is, is a character in a, in a Gary Larson Far Side cartoon. That was my image. It was, a, it was like a single guy um, wearing a, a saber-toothed um, tiger pelt and carrying a club, making a quip in a New Yorker cartoon. Like, that was my idea of what the, the missing link was. So I, I've had to actually learn specifically what it is from a scientific standpoint for tonight. Um, and it, it is not a real thing. Um, the missing link is not a... Um, it, it is a layman's term that's been used to, to encapture a larger idea. Essentially, what it refers to is the last human chimp common ancestor. So, the, the last time that you saw both chimp and human characteristics in the same species before they separated into both, I think, Pan and, and Homo. Uh, and so, the idea for me, again, was still this idea that, oh, we'll just find the fossil, we'll find the missing link, that one species. But because there are obviously so many different species of um, the early human and early chimp, the, the exact definition of what that is actually stretches nine million years. So we have nine million years to work with in actually finding this missing link. And even today, there are still people who argue about exactly what um, counts as the missing link and what doesn't count as the missing link. So... In the time of, um, I mean, it, like, to think of it the way, it's the idea, you know, that argument that people always have about the exact <clears throat> moment that a fetus becomes a human being, or like, when does a, a storm become a cyclone, uh, or when does a, a joke become a dad joke? 
Like, what is the... Actually, science has answered that. <laughs> a joke becomes a dad joke when the punchline becomes apparent. 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 I have a three-year-old, and I am teaching her uh, just enough so that she hates me for that joke. Then I know my job is complete. So anyway, in Dawson's lifetime, scientists were not necessarily having those arguments. They were really just looking for any sort of fossil, any sort of evidence of, of this missing link, which meant that there were a lot of people that, that grew up interested in fossicking. There were people who would spend their weekends going out into previously unattended fields and ditches and forests and dig for fossils. And Charles Dawson was one of those. He was a lawyer by trade, so during the, the, the week he would practice law um, and he had absolutely no scientific training whatsoever, but that didn't stop him from heading out and, and spending his weekends uh, digging for fossils. And he was uh, near his, um, his home, he was from Sussex, I should say, in the United Kingdom. So he basically went all over Sussex and the United Kingdom looking for various fossils. And he was extraordinarily good at it. What he would do is basically not just look for them himself, but he would make connections with the local farmers, miners, excavators, builders, anyone who carried a shovel, he would talk to them and tell them the sorts of things that he was after. So he had this network of informants all over the, all over the county, all over the country, in fact, who would come to him first when they found something interested, interesting. And he would basically have these little informal digs with his friends where they would start looking for things. He discovered um, three uh, different uh, new species. He discovered a, a, a mammal, um, and you have to excuse my pronunciation of these. Um, if we have any um, paleontologists who would like to heckle, now's the time to do it. Uh, the Plagiolax dorsoni. Uh, which was a, a new mammal that he had discovered, uh, a new dinosaur, Iguanodon dorsoni, uh, and a new plant, Salaganella dorsoni. So all of these he, he uh, discovered, um, all from obviously different areas and different types of, of life, and he discovered them. But he wasn't just a paleontologist. He also discovered um, brick stamps um, that proved that Romans had occupied a castle in Sussex, which previously there'd been no evidence that they had been there at all, but they, he discovered these, these bricks that were stamped. Um, he also discovered a, a Roman statue in Beauport Park that was made of cast iron. And up until that point, it wasn't known whether Romans uh, of that particular era used cast iron, and he was able to provide a, a, an actual Roman statue that was, that was uh, made of cast iron. And so it, just that one discovery changed what we knew um, about Roman art, um, about the, the metals that were used, and, of course, the methods that they were using um, to, to build things. So it was an extraordinarily uh, important discovery from just a guy, just a lawyer. Um, my favourites, um, he also discovered a Neolithic stone axe and an ancient timber boat. So all of these things he did without any sort of scientific training. He did them just with his, you know, by rolling up his sleeves and, and giving it a try. Um, for his trouble, he was uh, elected a fellow of the Society of uh, Antiquities uh, in London. Uh, the British Museum conferred upon him the title of Honorary Collector, which doesn't actually sound that good, does it? Honor like, that sounds like a 10-year-old who's gone to the British Museum... <laughs> You're right. They, like they knelt down and put a sticker on him and ruffled his head a little bit. But he was also a, a fellow of the Geological Society and, and also helped found the uh, Hastings and St. Leonard's uh, Museum Association. So he was just a regular guy who did not make any money from this. He was never paid in any way, but he cared about exploration and he cared about discovery. 
However, his most dis famous discovery came in 1912. Um, around four years earlier, some farmers had come to him with some bone fragments that they thought might be of interest to him. He took them to um, Arthur Smith Woodward, who is the keeper of geology at the Natural History Museum, which is, that is a much better title than, isn't it? I am the keeper of geology. If it weren't for me, geology would be, it's just behind there, but I'm holding it back. Um, and so the two of them became fast friends and they decided that they would go and dig in this small town, uh, very, very close, in fact, to where um, Dawson lived. And they began digging on this site together. So four years later, after ex excavating, like, different scientists were coming and going, different volunteers were helping. One day, Dawson discovered some bone fragments. Um, it was a skull uh, and a jaw. Um, and when they were reconstructed, they discovered that the teeth were roughly the same um, shape, uh, sorry, the, roughly the same position as those of a chimp, but they were, they were flat like a human's. The jaw was similar to a chimpanzee's, but then the, the skull was closer to a human. And even just you know, looking at this, Arthur Woodward knew that this could be that missing link, that thing that they had been looking for. Now, they could tell, obviously, from the fact that it was all found in the same place and that it had the same coloration, that, it was, um, that they all belonged together, and they were able to basically, using what they knew of the area, and get some plaster and basically put together a skull. Um, they took that to the Geological Society, where it was decided that it was around 500,000 years old, and uh, after much discussion, they agreed that this was, in fact, the missing link. So just a regular lawyer from Sussex discovered the missing link. The, the name that it was given was uh, Eonthropus Dorsoni, always Dorsoni. I noticed that. He always had his name on the end, or Darwin's Dawn Man. And, and to me, what I love about the story at this point is that the scientists were forced to accept someone who just rolled up their sleeves and gave it a go. And it he, the reason he found it, he didn't find these things in spite of being an amateur. He found them because he was an amateur, because he, he wasn't constricted by funding or job titles or scientific disciplines. He could be a paleontologist one day or a biologist the next. He could be a historian, an archaeologist, a botanist, or a geologist. He could basically be whatever he wanted to be because there was no one to stop him. Um, the, the word amateur, as you probably know, comes from the Latin um, for the love of. He, you know, professionals do it for money, amateurs, we do it for the love of. And I always think of the, uh, the amateur ast astronomer who can go out and, and look at the sky and name all the stars and tell you what they all mean, whereas a professional is less likely to be able to do that because they've got important work to do. Um, and because of that, the, the, the amateurs are the ones who are often finding the new stars and new planets in the sky. So it was because he was an amateur who was able to discover it and, and change the way we thought about archaeology. Um, as uh, Sadly, he passed away about four years later um, and didn't get to see the, the new discoveries that were found over the coming decades. And every new discovery um, made Dawson's Dawn Man more extraordinary because when you compared the two, these, these new discoveries with the old ones, it, it made the line uh, that they, they'd sort of drawn of what evolution meant zigzag in weird directions. And it was there's arguments about what did this mean? How does this compare to Dawson's Dawn Man? Until finally in 1953, a group of British um, scientists were able to actually test the skull using a new fluorine-based technique. And they actually discovered that the skull fragments were not half a million years old. They were 50,000 years old. And then when they tested the jawbone, they discovered it was 50 years old. 
And when they looked a little bit closer, they realized that the little scratched marks on the teeth were not caused by gnashing or any of the things they thought. The little marks on the teeth were caused by someone filing down a chimpanzee's teeth. They looked even closer and saw dental putty had held the teeth in place in various places and that the jawbone had been um, treated with uh, various chemicals to make it look like it was the same age as the rest of the skull. Dawn's Dawn Man was a complete fraud. It was not real at all. It was a complete uh, and utter scam. Um, in fact, when they looked uh, recently, they actually looked at the skull fragments even closer and discovered that um, it wasn't one skull, it was actually three different people and a chimpanzee all put together to make this one thing. And, it, of course, when they put the skull together, because it was different people, that made it look all the more extraordinary because they couldn't quite... How does it fit together? Um, and, and, in fact, the jaw hinge, uh, the man here where it actually links, where, where there would have been evidence, that had been smashed just so that you couldn't see where the skull would have connected to the jaw. It was a chimpanzee and three dead guys. <laughs> so... the. Yeah. This obviously made the papers and people started to, to discuss it more. And, and over the years, there's been a lot of discussions about it and a lot of research. In 2003, there was a study showed that 38 of Charles Dawson's previous discoveries were also forgeries. 38. Um, so this was not a case of the, 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 the skull, which so I should say at this point, the name of it is the Piltdown Man, is its more common name for those who haven't heard of it, uh, who have heard of it. It wasn't just that this was like a one-off hoax. The, the, the Piltdown Man, this was, this was the finale of a lifetime of work. <laughs> this, this was his big moment in the sun. Yeah? Everything had been working to this point. It started off small and then bang! It, it just blew it away. And what is crazy is when you look back, this is not something where the scientists were all in agreement and went, well, science, let's move on. There were people from the beginning who looked at it and went, nah, that's three dudes and a chimpanzee. <laughs> there was um, Garrett Smith-Miller, Marcellin Bull and David Waterson all publicly stated in the 12 months after it was discovered, that is fake, I know a chimpanzee when I see one. <laughs> and yet they were ignored, no one believed them. So... The question I ask, well, hang on, how does an amateur do this? How does, he, how does he get the knowledge to be able to do this? And there are people who have suggested he did not work alone. And that we now have a rogues gallery of suspects of who was it who helped Charles Dawson do it. So first of all, Arthur Woodward, right, the geologist, uh, the keeper of geology. Now, the first person you would assume, he was the person who presented it to the scientific community. However, he was uh, known to be trustworthy. There was no evidence of fraud at all on his part. And he was so passionate about this that it seems impossible to believe that he would, uh, had been involved. However, he did have an assistant, a man by the name of Martin Hinton, who people are a little bit more suspect of, particularly when in 1970 a trunk of his was found in the British Museum and in the bottom were some bone fragments that had been treated with the exact same chemicals as the Piltdown Man's um, chimpanzee jaw. So did Martin Hinton help Charles Dawson in order to scam his boss, or to help his boss, give him what he wanted. Um, in fact, there was another man who was there on the day that Piltdown Man was discovered, uh, uh, and I apologise to any French speakers. Uh, he was a French Jesuit priest by the name of uh, Pierre Théard de Chardin. Good? Okay, excellent. <laughs> um, so, the, basically, this was at a time uh, at which the, the Catholic Church 
um, in particular, was very much involved in cosmology and the idea, you know, we can look at the stars and say, what does it mean? The church felt like they were also in charge of what the stars mean. The heavens was their responsibility. And so you had a lot of priests who were also interested in science. Um, and in fact, when he was present there on the day, he was also completely committed to um, evolution and uh, absolutely committed to the idea of evolution and thought that the missing link was going to be found. So you have someone who is a Jesuit priest who's quite happy to talk a lot of bullshit about the stars. Was he also prepared to help make this skull talk another type of bullshit to try and get... Um, people interested in the idea of evolution um, or was it him working without this is another theory him working with Minton to mess with Dawson who was in fact innocent but they knew about the other 38 frauds and they wanted to scam the scammer now why would they do that well they would do that with the help of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle the creator of Sherlock Holmes who lived 10 miles from the Piltdown site, had met Charles Dawson on several occasions and was known to play golf on the Piltdown site. So, you have, so did the three of them team up to mess with Dawson or did any of them individually help Dawson or did perhaps he do it by himself? There are still people in arguing. There was a recent um, article in the paper that said, no, Charles Dawson worked alone because all of the techniques were the same. But every time that comes up, there are other people who point out that, and this is my favourite um, conspiracy theory, um, was that the Jesuit priest was in fact an atheist trying to bring down the Catholic Church from the inside. <laughs> so... So there are still people actually figuring out how it worked, uh, how he, uh, Charles Dawson did this. I, Dawson, was, Dawson was pretty clearly involved. There are also people trying to figure out who else helped him. But I think the big question is, why did he do it? Now, the cynical answer comes from uh, 2003. Dr. Miles Russell noted, and this is what he said, Dawson's whole academic career appears to have been built on, uh, been one built upon deceit, sleight of hand, fraud and deception. The ultimate gain being international recognition. Now, I don't like that. Firstly, because I am someone who has built their career upon deceit, sleight of hand, <laughs> with the goal of international recognition. But also, I, I, I don't see that as Dawson's game because there, uh, there was so much passion in what he did. So I, I, I guess I like to think, and I have no evidence for this, but after that... <laughs> After that story, who needs evidence? <laughs> I like to think that Charles Dawson did all of that because at his heart, he was an amateur. I think that he pulled off the Piltdown Man for the love of it. Thank you very much. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week 
where the team will once again get lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.